All right, and uh, welcome back to Book Therapy. This is Rob Cohen. A little bit of a early night tonight. It's not uh, my normal 10 or 11 o'clock at night that I'm recording. It's actually only 10 minutes after 9 on September the 19th. And um, why am I able to record so early? Well, the Dodger game's over. They lost. Um, but 6.10 start time on Saturday nights means, unless it goes into extra innings, we got a little bit of an earlier uh, finishing time. So the game ended, oh, about 10 minutes ago, and uh, here I am. Good thing is, you know, I like recording, but I also like reading. And so when it comes to making the decision of whether to record or to read, it's sometimes a tough decision because of how much I I like to read. Um, but now I can record 9 o'clock and then still have an hour or two uh, after I record to go ahead and read. And I'm reading a, a pretty good book right now. Um, but, you know, um, I still want to talk about the books that I just read. And I'm only going to talk about two books because, um, frankly, I'm sure they're the two books you've been waiting weeks and weeks and weeks for me to report on. I teased uh, last episode that I was in the middle of The Murderer's Daughter by Jonathan Kellerman. So I finished that one. We'll start that one up first. And then, uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll talk about how I'm a hypocrite um, after we talk about The Murderer's Daughter. So as you know, I'm a big, huge fan of Jonathan Kellerman's books. I've read uh, just about everything he's written that's fiction. Um, I didn't read any of the books that he wrote with his wife, Faye Kellerman. Um, I don't know why. Maybe you can call it this mental block I have uh, about reading women authors. And again, mea culpa, I'm really sorry. But for whatever reason, I never read those books. But I did read all the standalone novels, um, all the Alex Delaware novels, and you know everything else in between. And the last couple books that he's written that have not been the Alex Delaware novels, they seem to be of a different caliber than um, they seem to be of a different caliber than uh, than the Alex Delaware novels. All right, uh, sorry about that. That was weird. Did, did you guys hear that beep? It went beep beep beep. I, I heard it. It's uh, where I record. Um, we have a um, we have the alarm system here. Oh my god! I feel like I need to start over. Um, I'm trying to tell you about the alarm, and then my wife walks in, and that's all disturbing. And, you know, she doesn't even listen to these, so it's not like I'm going to continue to record while she's in here because she doesn't listen anyways. Um, anyways, so there was this beeping, and, and um, we have an alarm for the house. And uh, I don't know why, but one of the sensors is up here in the room that I in which I record, and so it beep, beep, beeped, and didn't know what it was. Anyways, not sure where I was. I was talking about uh, Jonathan Kellerman. Um the Alex Delaware novels, I think he's written like 25 or 30 of them. And I went back over my Goodreads and I looked, and for the most part, they're all threes and fours. I mean, nothing is really standout five-star. I think some of the earlier earlier books were. Um, but if I, I view those as kind of comfort reads, like I know what I'm going to get. It's not going to take too long. It's going to be pretty, pretty quick. And it's going to be an interesting read. It's going to hold my interest. And then you know, I won't remember it. And as I look at the, the the list of books that Jonathan Kellerman has written, I could probably not tell you anything about any of them, um, for the most part, at least. So, but I have noticed that the last couple books that he's written that were not Alex Delaware novels have been much more layered, and uh, it just seems like he spent a lot more time and, and thought on them. One of them, he wrote with his son, Jesse Kellerman, called The Gollum of Hollywood, which I don't think we spoke about, but I read it about a year ago, I think, last October, um, and I really, really enjoyed it. It was a, um, it was a mystery, but it was kind of a, a spiritual, a little bit of um, um, mysticism, 
um, and it, it it really had some layers. It, it it certainly well, I mean, it 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 had the 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 current day murder mystery interspersed with biblical stuff and and the creation of this golem and the the mysticism surrounded by that. And so it was a really fun and interesting and compelling read, um, which I believe they're they're doing a sequel called The Golem of Paris. I think that comes out in the next month or two. And then this one, The Murderer's Daughter, which is, I think, the start of a brand new series of books involving a female protagonist by the name of Grace Blades. Sorry, I needed to take a quick break for a, a sip of my Angel's Envy whiskey. Um, so Grace Blades uh, is the new protagonist, and it's I, th- I I think it's fairly obvious that there's a Elizabeth Salander influence here, the the Millennium, Millennium Trilogy, the girl with the dragon tattoo, because this is a a character who had a a very very poor upbringing. She was a um, a foster child who was shuttled. Uh, you know, all around as far as uh, um, foster families and and um, finally ends up getting adopted by this really great family that takes really good care of her and gives her all of the opportunities to become the genius that she really already was. I mean, she had an intellect that was far superior to any of the other foster children with which she was uh, living, and she ends up really taking what was a, a terrible, terrible beginning to her childhood and turning it into a, a, an immensely successful practice as a uh, as a psychiatrist or psychologist, I don't remember which it was. Um, and, and so this was a much more layered book because of the, I think, the, in, in the necessity of laying the foundation for future, um, future volumes in this series, the creation of the character, the backstory of, of what her childhood was like. And I found myself really gravitating more towards the chapters that dealt with her childhood because they were much more compelling. You have this this story of a of a young girl who was not wanted by either of her parents. Um, her mother ends up killing her father, um, and I think ends up killing herself. I don't really recall what it was. And then she ends up going into Grace, ends up going into the foster system here in, in Los Angeles County, and gets shuttled from house to house, um, ends up at the the house of a very nice older lady um, up in Palmdale or Lancaster or something like that. And, and it's there that she begins to flourish, um, but that house also has other kids in it, and some of the kids are good, and some of the kids are bad, and some very, very unhappy and unfortunate things take place while she's at that house, which causes her to have to go to another foster family. But this time, it's a foster family that really dotes on her, gives her all the opportunities. Basically, it's the perfect situation for her. Uh, It's a family, it's a husband and wife, who will be as 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 affectionate towards her as she wants or as unaffectionate towards her as she wants and you can understand having been abandoned by her parents you know who were who were dead at such a young age and by the way the, the parents didn't want anything to do with her when she was when they were alive um she is very slow to trust she's very slow to experience uh, affection or um, give off any affection and so this husband and wife who are scholarly and very well off allow her as much freedom as she needs in order to develop. And she, of course, races through school at high speeds, um, graduates early, and uh, and becomes a very successful uh, practitioner. In the meantime, however, bad things are happening. Um, the she, she is a little bit of a, I guess you could call sexual deviant. She likes to go to um, have one-night stands with, with people, pick up guys in bars, and use fake names and all that kind of stuff. 
and um, the 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 circumstances which give rise to this mystery is that she picks up a guy in a bar, they have sex, and it turns out that this guy is her appointment the next day, and obviously she didn't know it, neither did he, and yet he uh, ends up dead, and so she undertakes to basically. Con- uh, uh, go through the investigation and try to find out who this guy was because he used a fake name and then, of course, why he was killed and what all this has to do with her. And, of course, as as you would guess, um, the mystery ends up tying back to her time as a foster child and the experience she had with this old lady at, at this old lady's house that ended up with, um, you know, bad things happening. But one of the things that I found, I guess, a little bit frustrating about this book is that all of the detective search, all of the the investigation, so to speak, all of the 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 finding of fact and determination of who the bad guy is, it all pretty much takes place in Grace's head. Um, she doesn't really utilize any any strong evidence. She doesn't do a whole lot of research, other than what she, you know, she tracks it in her mind, so to speak. And she kind of creates circumstances that suit her, um, suit her beliefs. She basically has decided who the bad guy is. And then she, she traces that person's life backwards and finds a whole bunch of other bad things that happened while this person was alive. And then I guess determines that that proves her case. And so it's a little bit frustrating. There's a, a police officer that, um, initially comes to meet with her, um, I think the, the the victim had her card in his wallet, and so she this uh, police detective comes and visits Grace, and the two ladies um, have a little bit of an engagement but or, um, interaction, but very little information is exchanged. And then the police detective kind of disappears. And it's really Grace's story. It's really Grace, you know, conducting the investigation on her own. But she kind of just creates the argument as to who the bad guy is on her own. She does her research, she tracks some of the foster kids with whom she lived, and she finds out that bad things happened to them after they had grown up, and there's one of the foster kids that's still alive but changed his name and ends up being this big wig in San Francisco. And by process of elimination, basically, she determines that the person who's still alive, the the foster child who's still alive, is the bad guy. And I don't recall there ever being a situation where the bad guy says, I did it, or there's anything concrete that is identified as supporting her theory other than her own process of elimination. Now, Kellerman is fantastic about theorizing. He has his characters, Alex Delaware, obviously more often than than any other because he's more prominent in the books, but the characters will will go through a process where they will theorize what happens. Uh, the the customary ex- example of this is Alex Delaware and Milo Sturgis, the police detective, will be sitting in a room or they'll be driving from a witness's house or whatever it is they'll be doing, and Alex will start theorizing what happened. And eventually you'll find out that Alex is probably right or fairly close to being right. And sure, along the way, Alex will theorize something which ends up not being um, not being the truth because the, the evidence just doesn't line up that way. But it is this process of theorizing. And so the murderer's daughter is basically a story in two parts, inter- the two parts being interspersed with each other. One is 
the upbringing of Grace Blades and how she came from this terrible, terrible life living in a motorhome with two parents who hated her and actually didn't want anything to do with her to the successful, um, the successful psychologist who um, you know has a little bit of a sexual deviant but then ends up being caught in the middle of a, a murder mystery. And then the second part being her theorization, her theorizing of who the bad guy is. Along the way, she kills a couple people. At the end, she kills a couple people. And so it's a little bit disjointed from that standpoint because it, it, it just, you don't know for sure. And um, you can think that the theories that Grace is coming up with sound right. And certainly the, 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 the numbers start to add up as far as when things happened and who was involved and who's still around and who's dead. But it doesn't really, I don't recall, make it 100% clear that her theories are right or the rationale behind why the murders were taking place. And so from that standpoint, I got a little bit uncomfortable or I just was a little bit... Um, dissatisfied with the outcome of the book because it just felt unfinished. Um, I had found at times a little bit of difficulty reading the book, not because it was uncomfortable, because some of them, some of the chapters were more compelling than others. But that was because I felt that there was much more thought put into it. It was much more structured. Um, the Alex Delaware novels are basically start to finish really fairly linear and yet I really got the feeling that Kellerman put in the time to really focus on structure breaking up the chapters where he did uh, putting each chapter whether it be in the past or in the future or in the present where they were so that they would kind of keep the narrative going while ensuring that the reader was still going to be you know on the edge of a seat when there was some sort of a cliffhanger. But different from the Linwood Barclay novel, like we talked about last time, who really shortens his chapters and ends each chapter on a cliffhanger so that you really are eager to find out what happens next, Kellerman's chapters are a little bit longer, and they don't always end on cliffhangers. And so it's it's then becomes a little bit less compulsive and intense. And so I found myself less taken in by the mystery of it and more taken in by the backstory. And so I hope that as this character develops and as this the series progresses, that now that we have the backstory of Grace Blades in our rearview mirror, that we can now start to focus more on the intensity of whatever mysteries she's faced with or whatever um, situations in which she's she's placed, because that's where the real stress and the intensity comes from. So I give Kellerman a little bit of a pass on that. I did acknowledge that it was a much more layered, structured, and well-planned and thought-out book, but the intensity of it was a little bit lacking, so I, I anticipate we'll see a little bit more of that as the series progresses, because I anticipate we'll see more. Because, look, with with the success of the uh, the, the Lisbeth Salander novels, the Millennium Trilogy, you've got this, this I think, this... this yearning for strong female characters not anymore the damsel in distress but more the problem solver the kick-ass um who's no longer a pushover and so i i kind of anticipate that we're going to see a little bit more of grace blades in the future so that's the murderer's daughter by jonathan kellerman and now the one you've been waiting for or maybe you haven't i don't know i mean it's i was waiting for it let's put it that way 
And again, since, since I just uh, mentioned in two different breaths the Lisbeth Salander novels, the sequel or the follow-up to the Millennium Trilogy, The Girl in the Spider's Web by David Lagerkrantz, um, not Stieg Larsson, because as you're probably aware, he passed away after, was it after or before the, I think before even all the novels had been uh, published. Uh, but this is the authori authorized, well, that's a good question. Unauthorized, authorized, authorized by Stieg Larsson's family, unauthorized by Stieg Larsson's wife, uh, girlfriend, not wife, because they weren't married. You know, I was thinking about this as I started to read this book because I was so excited for it and I bought it so that it was delivered the day it came out, is after the way that I spoke about the sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird, that I guess I'm a little bit of a hypocrite, right? Because I was pretty vehemently opposed to the publication of Ghost Set a Watchman, the follow-up to, to To Kill a Mockingbird, because we weren't really sure whether Harper Lee really wanted it to be published. And who's right? Or who, who are we to demand the publication of this novel? Now, I know we're not really demanding it, but we're clamoring for it. It certainly was a huge publishing event when it came out. But if Harper Lee had been sitting on this book for 40 or 50 years, who are we to demand that it be published? Who are we to clamor for it? Um, because that's her. It's her, her decision. And yet here's Stieg Larsson who passed away and... It's still, it's still in dispute as to whether he wanted any of his further novels published. Um, you know, if you believe what the girlfriend says, he had a fourth book, or at least most of a fourth book, in his computer when he died, but she won't release it. And if she won't release it, and she presumably knew this guy better than anybody, then who are we to subvert those wishes if those wishes are to be believed, and engage a new writer to create a brand new story utilizing these characters. Um, and I don't know. Um, I've done it before where I've read books that are continuations of series that the authors have, have long since passed. Um, most um, noticeable, at least in my mind as I, as I talk about it now, is the Godfather books written by Mario Puzo, um, there were actually two separate follow-up series of books, meaning they were written by different people. Um, there was The Godfather Returns and The Godfather's Revenge by um, Mark Weingarten, I think. And then uh, there was a, just recently a book a couple years ago by Edie Falco's brother that was another sequel to The Godfather. And uh, I actually read the Mike, I think it's Matt Weingarten, Mark Weingarten books. Um, and I really liked them. I, I did read the, the Godfather by Mario Puzo, and then I read these two sequels, and I really liked them. Um, but it's, look, it's, I'm not going to be shocked, and you're not going to be shocked when I say it. It's strictly capitalization on an already existing uh, and, and notable and known product. Um, this guy, David Lagerkrantz, may be a successful author in Sweden, but um, there's no way this guy's getting the publicity in the United States with his own books. He's getting the publicity because he's following up on the, the notoriety of the Dragon Tattoo books. And this guy, Mark Weingarten, or whatever his name is, who followed up on the Godfather books, he's not getting any notoriety for any of his other books, but he's getting notoriety because the known, proven quantity of the Godfather is what sells the books, not the writer, not the writer's name. 
And so you get a, I guess, a, a, look, do, do you think that this is all just capitalizing on the name? Yeah. Is it, is it making sure that the inertia of the Millennium Trilogy continues and carries forward through these next books? Yeah. But so what? I mean, I guess, again, I'm going to be hypocritical. You develop an attachment to these characters, and it's not as if, I, I guess here's the distinction I'll make. It's not as if Stieg Larsson isn't writing uh, Lisbeth Salander books anymore because he doesn't want to. It isn't that he's not writing these books or he's not publishing the books because he's decided not to. We don't know whether he would have continued the series or not. If the girlfriend's to be believed, he had another book. Was he going to publish that book? I don't know. But if he'd lived longer, it's possible he would have. And yet Harper Lee is a little different because she is still alive. She's had the book done for 40, 50 years. She had every opportunity to publish it, and she didn't. Do you understand the difference? I feel like I've made a distinction of the two. And so in this case, why not let the characters continue? Because they've certainly been... Uh, they, they are important to people. They've become part of people's literature, um, it's there, there are certainly books that appeal to a wide audience, um, and there's still a demand for it, I imagine. I mean, we'll find out if the book ends up selling. Um, I haven't looked at the bestseller list this week, but I mean, I can imagine that the book has been selling. I know a couple of my friends who have already read it, and I know a couple of my friends who were interested to hear what I thought about it. So I guess we'll find out. I mean, we've got these, I mean, it, it happens, let's see, like the Robert Ludlum books. Okay, Robert Ludlum died, and yet people continue to write books with his characters. And I think it was, uh, is it Vince Flynn died uh, not too long ago, and Brad Thor is writing a book using his characters. So I guess the distinction being if somebody passes away, why not let those characters continue with other people, so long as those other people are faithful? Um, Robert Ludlum, a little bit different because while his books were spy novels, I wouldn't say that they were so unique to the voice of Robert Ludlum that only he could write them and they can't be duplicated. Um, but, you know, a character, let's look, if I were to say Charles Dickens is dead, but we're going to continue to write Charles Dickens novels using his characters that David Copperfield, I mean, come on, nobody could write those books again. Um, and I think for, for Harper Lee, it's a little different that if she were to pass away and somebody were want to write an Atticus Finch novel, I think it might be a little different. And yet, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not different because once you're dead, you, you can't say anything anymore. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. You can call me a hypocrite or you can say I made a good argument. I'm going to think I made a good argument because like a, a good attorney, after a while, we start to believe our own bullshit. So anyways, this is The Girl in the Spider's Web. Now, the first thing that's noticeable about this book it's much shorter than the others. If I recall correctly, the other books were a good 550 pages long. This one is 400 pages on the dot, which is fine. I mean, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying it's noticeably shorter. Um, so I'm going to start off by saying I like the book, and it certainly leaves it open for another book, and so I will read the next book. After that, unless the author can really hook me in on the second book or can leave a, a pretty good cliffhanger that means the third book needs to be read as well. I'm not sure how much further I'll go. But let me tell you first about my experience with The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo books. Um, I don't want to be a, a book snob, and I don't want to be all hotty-totty about it, 
but uh, I fucking read these books before everybody else, okay? There, I said it. Um, I, I read all three books, I think, before most people had read the first book. Um, and I know that's probably not true, but it sure felt that way because of everybody I knew, I'd already read all three books before they became interested in, in the first book. And I'm not sure why. Um, I remember it was probably in November or December, I'm walking through the bookstore, not obviously this year, but many, many years back at this point. November or December, I'm walking through and I see this book on the just on the table with a whole bunch of other books, whether it was new releases or anything like that. And I was immediately attracted by the cover and the the title. And so I read it and I look at it. And I'm like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. But nevertheless, when it came time for Hanukkah and the giving of gifts, I requested that somebody get me this book. Um, and I, I got it and I read it and I really liked it. And I, I liked it because it was different. Um, I'm not really one of those feminists that needs a really strong female character, although she certainly was compelling. And this is an instance in which, um, you know, I've, I've said it to my daughter and I've said it to a lot of other people before, and it's certainly well known, that the book, the books, the movies, the TV shows, whatever it is, whatever form of media it is, is always more interesting and more exciting when the bad guy's on the screen. And the girl with the dragon tattoo and its sequels really flipped that on its ear. Those books were more exciting when the hero was on the screen. When Lisbeth was the focus, that's when the books got more interesting. Michael Bloomquist, okay. I mean, yeah, he's one of your heroes, but he wasn't really what drove those stories. And that's why they're not called, you know, the girl, they're not called the, the you know, the journalist who you know did an investigation it's the girl with the dragon tattoo we know going in that she's the focus and in fact throughout the entire three books she's the most interesting part of those books her story and her actions it was it was naughty it was nasty it was uncomfortable and yet at the end of the day you couldn't stop reading it it was that compelling um, now hindsight being 2020 i like to think that this trilogy the millennium trilogy actually put on its ear the prevailing idea that the first book is the best the third book is second and the second book is usually the weakest um, if you think of trilogies a lot of movie trilogies the second movie is the worst um, although you know when you think about it well let's look at some examples of that back to the future second one was the worst but the Star Wars trilogy, I think you could argue that the second one was the best. The Godfather trilogy, well, you could certainly argue that the second one was not the worst because the third one was the worst, but some people will think the second one was the best. So perhaps I'm not, oh, Lethal Weapon, the second one was the best. So maybe my maybe my, my argument, my analysis isn't that great. But in this instance, I, I think that the second book was the best because I think that was the one that truly focused the most on her, on Lisbeth. Remember, the first one is not Elizabeth Salander's story. It's the story of Michael Bloomquist investigating this murder that took place, or this disappearance, I'm sorry, disappearance, because she didn't end up being dead. The disappearance that took place, whatever it was, 25 or 30 years earlier, and Elizabeth ends up being an integral piece of the investigation. But it's not her story. It does take a little bit of give the a little bit of the background of her story in order to thread through to the three the, the other two 
novels. Um, but the second one really was her story. That, if I recall correctly, was one where you really got much more detail about her, and it was truly focused on her for the most part. I think was the second one also where the two journalists who work for the, for the magazine get killed, and you find out, though, that I think they end up leading back to her as well. So I had read those three. Um, I think I got the second one and the third one the, the day it came out, you know, read them, devoured them, whatever it was, and then made sure that everybody I knew read them as well. But, you know, then it started to get to be this, 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 you know, this phenomenon that everybody had to read this book. And I'm walking through whatever it is, bookstore and seeing people with them, you know, in a paperback and at the library and at the, you know, on the mall or whatever it is, everybody had to be reading this book. And I sat there going, well, okay, well, I read this one first and, and, um, you know, whatever it was, I, I like to think I discovered it, which obviously is not the case. Um, but so the, the fourth book then comes out and I want to be the first to read it. And I'm going to say that I liked it, but I'm going to say that I was a little disappointed in it. And the reason why I was disappointed in it, it goes back to why the second book was so good. At the end of the fourth book, we find out that it is still Lisbeth's story. The author does a very, very good job of making sure that this book ties into the canon of the Lisbeth Salander story. We find out that there is a, a tie to Lisbeth that runs through this fourth book. We don't know it until the end, and I'm not going to tell you what that was. But the author does stay true to the original source material and threads through the story. But, as I mentioned earlier, the Millennium Stories, the Millennium Trilogy, was much more exciting and compelling when Lisbeth is on the page. And she's not really in the book that much. I know, it sounds strange, right? I mean, if I recall correctly, I don't think she really shows up until about 100 pages in, and I don't think her involvement really becomes clear until maybe 200 pages in. So halfway through the book, and you haven't really experienced the character that has attracted you to the book in the first place. That's like saying, um, here, we're going to watch a Rocky movie, but Rocky's not going to really be in it that much. And in fact, when he is in it, it's not going to be till halfway through the movie. So you have this anticipation, when's she going to get here? When's she going to get here? When's she going to get here? And then when she does show up, it's kind of like, wait, 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 wait. I, I need more. I need more. Give me more. More. Okay, where did she go? Okay. Okay, she's back. Okay. Well, uh, wait, hold on. Where'd she go? And so it felt a little bit inconsistent from that standpoint that her involvement wasn't enough until the very, very end. And in fact, she and, and Michael Bloomquist, they don't even talk to each other until much, much further into the book. And, and in fact, I don't even think they see, they are not face-to-face -face until I think the last page. So I apologize if I'm giving you spoilers, but um, it's a little bit, a little bit, uh, um, uh, what's the word? It's kind of like a roller coaster where, no, not a roller coaster. It feels like it's choppy. That's the word. It's choppy. Um, the, the interweaving of the characters and the way the characters come into the screen and then go, and then go off the screen is kind of inconsistent. Um, the first hundred pages were so, uh, I don't want to say boring and I don't want to say slow. 
I had a hard time reading the first hundred pages. Part of it was I didn't have dedicated time to read. But the other part was it was taking a long time to get started. There was a lot of technology. There was a lot of computer technology. There was a lot of information on hacking and artificial intelligence. And I got bogged down in a little bit too much of the technology that I found myself struggling to get through it. And it got to the point where I was a little bit kind of, I wasn't really interested in reading about this stuff. And so I would put the book down and I wouldn't read another chapter when I went to bed. And I kind of took too long getting through that first hundred pages. After that, it started to pick up and then it slowed down a little bit and then it picked up again and then it slowed down a little bit. So it was kind of a little bit of a roller coaster, I guess, slow and fast and slow and fast. But at the end of the day, I don't really view this book as intending to conclude the Lisbeth Salander story. I don't view it as intending to um, to focus on Lisbeth Salander. I view it as kind of a testing the water, so to speak. Is there still enough interest and enough of a of a demand for a Lisbeth Salander novel that after this book is done, the next book in line will be much more focused on her? I'm I'm predicting it. I'm predicting it. That similar to the first Millennium Trilogy, this book is tangential to the Lisbeth Salander story until the end. And now book two, or book five, however you like to call it, will be much more focused on her story. Um, and from that standpoint, I, I absolutely will read the next one. If it turns out that the next story is more the same, where she doesn't really show up that much, and when she does, it's kind of sparse, and she doesn't really talk that much, um, and she, she doesn't have any sex, which I don't think she had any in this book, which you know was kind of interesting in the first first book at least. Um, and, and she and Michael Blumkus, by the way, don't seem to react. If 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 that stays consistent into the next book, then I I probably won't read a third book after that. But I think that what they wanted to do was test the waters. They wanted to see if there was still demand. They wanted to see if they were going to turn people off by it not being a Stieg Larsson novel, or would people still want to continue the story of Lisbeth Salander, and would they be receptive to this new series of books? Um, I've read reviews. Some have been great. Some have been have been piss poor. I mean, look, you're, you're going to get the spectrum no matter what. Um, and I'm going to say, I, I think I gave it four stars. Um, I think the reason why I didn't give it five is the technology and the, the confusing technology and the complexity of the technology really kind of detracted from the book. Um, and, and frankly, she's just not in it enough. Um, the book is more exciting when she's on the, on, the, on the pages. And the pages that she was in sped past. Really, really could not stop reading. Pages flew by. But then when she's not on the screen anymore, when she's not on the pages, the book slows down. Um, there's an introduction of brand new characters, which meant you had to re, re you had to acclimate yourself to the new characters whilst while reacclimating yourself to the um, already existing characters, um, and so that kind of made for a choppy reading experience. So that's the girl on the spider's web. I hope you read it, and uh, if you have read it, I'd love to hear your comments. Please email me at booktherapy13 at gmail.com. Tweet me at booktherapy13. You can also tweet me at robcohen13. I'd love to hear from you because I know that you guys are reading this book. I know somebody out there has read the book and has a thought one way or the other, so please let me know. Um, 
I'm about halfway, a little bit more than halfway through the latest Jack Reacher book called Make Me, which I'm really, really enjoying so far. Um, I seem to recall the last book I read um, that came out last week. Was it called last week? What the hell was it? Last year? Um, I don't remember what it was called. Was it called Personal? All I remember is I think it took place in England. Um, and I, I don't think I liked it that much. I thought it was pretty weak. But so far, this one I'm liking. Um, it's about Jack, uh, obviously, who gets off the train in Mother's Rest, which is an estate we don't know, and we never find out. But he decides to get off in Mother's Rest because he wants to find out why the city is called Mother's Rest. And of course, he finds out that things are not well in Mother's Rest. There are bad things taking place. There's a, reti a retired FBI agent who's now a private investigator who has gone missing in Mother's Rest. And his former partner, I think it's a former partner, um, has had called him or or wrote him. I don't wrote her. I apologize. The former partner's a woman, obviously, because Jack's got to have a woman partner in this instance. Um, he wrote her, told her to come to Mother's Rest, and when she gets there, he is nowhere to be found. And so, the mystery of the missing, uh, uh, missing uh, FBI agent slash private investigator. And uh, I like. Jack Reacher books because most of the time they don't stay in one place. This went from Mother's Rest to Los Angeles to Chicago, and now they're in Phoenix, which is pretty cool. And uh, we'll talk about that probably next time as well as some other books. I picked up a book today at the bookstore called The Prophet by Michael Carita. Um, I've never read his books, but I know Michael Connolly is a big fan. And uh, I think that his books are mysteries, but I think they're a little bit... Uh, a little bit suspenseful and terrifying as well, so I'm looking forward to that. And um, yeah, I know that uh, October 3rd, I think, is the new Michael Connolly book. Can't wait for that, called The Crossing. I think it's a Mickey Haller, Harry Bosch book, so you know I'll be waiting for that uh, with bated breath. And uh, I don't know. We'll find out. Still got the Linwood Barclay book. And I'm still got that book, The Willow Falls, The Willow Tree, The Songs of Willow, something or other, um, that is sitting on my bookshelf ready to go. So that's it. A little bit shorter tonight than before because I only had two books to discuss. And uh, frankly, that's all I wanted to discuss. What did I read? Oh, that was it. Girl in the Spider's Web. Did I go from Murderer's Daughter, Girl in the Spider's Web? Could be. Um Oh, but that, you know, Martyr, uh, The Girl in the Spider's Web, it also took me two weeks to read, and that's too long. A 400-page book shouldn't take me two weeks to read. Um, so there you go. So anyways, this is Rob Cohen. Please find me. Love to hear from you. Um, and this is Book Therapy, and thank you for letting me lie on your couch.